Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Juma Aljuju, founder and CEO of Karma Games. Karma Games produced the critically acclaimed Clans of Caledonia, and now their latest title, Thiefdom, is currently on Kickstarter. Juma, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great having you on The Binge. So we're actually on other sides of the planet right now. So where are you currently located? I'm based in Berlin, Germany. Wow. Now, I was reading from your bio that you uh, you were born in Dubai, is it? And then you, your family kind of moved to Germany? Or how did that all kind of happen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was born in Dubai. And... Um... Yeah, also, basically, I grew up in the Arabian culture, so I didn't speak any German. I spoke English and Arabic. And then we moved to Germany when I was five years old, to Bavaria, to the south of Germany, um, which is very different. Um, and yeah, since then, I'm living in, I've been living in Germany. And for quite a while, I'm now based in Berlin. In oh, the, in Berlin. So definitely, the, uh, the I think the weather and climate is a little bit different. <laughs> in very Germany different, versus yes, Dubai. The culture as well. Oh yeah, big time. So and so then you went to school in Germany as well. So you've kind of lived uh, most of your life there. And and, and what yeah. did you study in Germany? Oh, I did study a wild a variety of things. I studied philosophy, French, economics, and my bachelor degree. And then I worked as a consultant in IT. And then I um, did a master degree in innovation management and entrepreneurship and business administration. Like yeah. And like, and you ended up with a master's of science. I think I read after that too. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So you're well, uh, well educated. <laughs> I would say at least, at least this is what I can pretend to while referring to those titles. <laughs> so, and then in terms of like from when you finished your schooling, did you go straight into board games from there, or was there kind of an in between step of working in IT, or kind of how did that transition work for you? Um, yeah, after my bachelor degree, I kind of felt like I, I need a break from university, so I, yeah. I wanted to do something more practical and do uh, some learn something on the job, and so I, I went into SAP consulting, IT consulting. Okay. Um, wasn't like hundred percent for me, but it was still a good experience. And and like shortly after I started that, I I felt the urge to study even more, and then I. Um, rolled out for a master degree and then I was also very motivated because it was a very conscious choice. I didn't need to study the master degree. I could have just stayed in a well-paid consulting job, but instead mm. like I went for the master degree and, and yeah, I think for me it worked well to have this change in between. And have you been like board gaming your whole life? Is this something that's kind of been you know, mm -hmm. part of you since you're a kid or when did you get into the hobby? Kind of. So for me, I, I'm mostly, I mean, I was always playing games, yeah. As a kid, maybe not, I mean, back then there were not so many like modern games in, in what we nowadays would understand as modern games. Yeah. But um, I think like the one milestone was I entered chess club when I was around seven mm. and I, I was quite into it. So, I mean, I played a lot of chess and I also played other stuff like that. I mean, another milestone I think was um, Settlers of Catan for yeah. sure. Um, and I also loved El Grande during in my childhood. So I basically played these games when they came out mm. and they were released. But I kind of liked um, regular opponents. 
not, not so many people around here were as uh, fanatic about board games as I was. So I played definitely played more chess than other board games because like in chess club, it's organized, people go there. So I, I played a lot more chess. And um, I think when I was like a teenager or like in early in my early 20s, I actually didn't play a lot of board games because like I, I moved to another city first to study. And then I don't know, I didn't have like people to play board games with and I I kind of forgot this hobby to a certain degree at, yeah. and at some point I picked it up again and um yeah that's cool and then in terms so uh, you know and I, I learned chess when I was very very young my father taught me as well I believe I was around six or seven as well um and it's I think it really kind of gives you a, a strong anchor in terms of you know, a strategic approach to games, right? When you start off with these kinds of games and abstract games, do you find you gravitate back towards abstract type games even now, or have you kind of abandoned strategy abstract and gone more kind of thematic in, in, in your games as of late? Um, I would like to make abstract games, but I think it's a, I mean, I would have to apply a very different business model. So I very much yeah. focus on Kickstarter and B2C. And board games are usually don't have a lot of components. They're usually don't are not flashy. They don't have artwork. So they don't tend to do so well on Kickstarter yeah. because let's people are can basically only judge what they see. And there is not a lot to see in an abstract game, usually. Yeah. You know? So it's a it's a hard sell. Um, so that's why I'm not really focusing on it, although I probably will enjoy it personally. Um, yeah, I think if I'd go for abstract games, I would have to focus a lot more on retail and, um, yeah. It's tough, yeah. right? I, I've got yeah. uh, some colleagues, uh, BS games, they've got uh, a game called Sonoma and it, it is great. And it's a two player abstract game. You're on this, uh, on this board and you're moving these kind of, uh, d4 dice and so forth it's it's a cool game and it plays very well easy to teach and there's a lot of depth and strategy to your moves but it's an abstract game and it looks like an abstract game when you see it on a table and although it looks really nice it still looks like an abstract game and that they, they struggle with that right do we take this to kickstarter or do we not it's probably not going to do well if we go on kickstarter okay well then how do we self-fund it in order to get inventory then to sell to stores or it might do better and things like that and it is it is a challenge in the industry because from what I've seen, Abstract does horrible on Kickstarter. Um, yeah. And what I usually say, and I was just at a protospiel uh, uh, about a week ago here in, in Toronto, and uh, I was talking to someone that had a bunch of Abstract games, and they said, you know, what do you think? And uh, my design uh, partner uh, and brother uh, were kind of playing this one game, and we said, you know, you gotta you gotta wrap this in a theme of some sort because the way you have it right now. I mean, this isn't your, it's going to be very, it's going to be a tough sell, right? You're going to have a very, very narrow audience, but if you can kind of wrap a theme around it and create a story, and then it's kind of almost like an abstract game hidden in this story, you're going to have a way better chance when you try to take this to market. And uh, it just reminded me the importance of, of theme, right? Uh, especially when it comes to, to Kickstarter. And, and certainly I think we see this with the kind of games that you guys are creating as well. Um, when you started the, the clans of Caledonia, so that, that was what, two, three years ago that came out? Uh, it's been already six years ago. Yeah. Six years ago. Wow. Yeah. Time flies. I tell you, COVID just uh, makes everyone's, uh, concept of yeah. time disappear. But I mean, that did very, very well, right. On Kickstarter. Yeah. 
And I'm pretty sure you guys, uh, even for retail, uh, beyond Kickstarter, you know, really that game exploded. Where, how did you guys get into that? Like, because that was kind of the first big one for you guys, was it not? Yeah. Where like, where did that come from? Where did the kind of the whole conceptualization? Did you guys kind of plan to do that as a company, or did you have a game that you wanted to get out there, and it was based on having that game out there, which then kind of created the company? Because I often see that with with a lot of designers too, is they'll start with one title and then it's like, oh, we've got a company that's kind of sprung from this. How was it for you guys? I mean, the company already existed for a while. And in the very beginning, I focused a little more on um, educational mm. themed games in, the, in a broad sense, let's say. Yeah. Um, like one of my games, my first game was called Green Deal and it was like an economic game, but had it was also a little bit about sustainability from a corporate perspective. Yeah, and like company, the players represented competing companies, and they could also do greenwashing. So, um, and even though Tom Vassell really liked it and gave it his seal of excellence, I mean, the game didn't sell so well. And I mean, for sure, like the artwork could have been better, the marketing could have been better. But um, despite all of that, I I truly believe that the theme did hurt a lot. And even though it was not a preachy game, it wasn't like, yeah, let we all have to save the planet. You could win by greenwashing. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, the theme was too off-putting for people. So then I kind of realized, okay, either I either I cannot do this for longer. So either I, I change something or I do or I do something else for, for a living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to rather than like trying to come up with games that I think people should like, I focused more on what do people already like. And um, so basically in clients, I focused on stuff that kind of worked, like a theme that kind of works, like mechanics that work. Mm -hmm. And sure, there is like incremental innovation here and there. And the recombination of tried stuff is also novel and it's in, in its own sense. Mm-hmm. But I didn't try to reinvent the wheel or t- to do something like completely novel and groundbreaking. Um, yeah, and it worked out. That's very insightful. Uh, I, I think in this industry as a whole, um, you get rewarded for familiarity. And you get punished when you try to innovate too much. Right. And, you know, I think we were, we were saying with the increments, right. Do it. If you're going to do changes, do it incrementally. And, and I've run into this with prior tiles where people are like, well, I'm not really sure how to kind of position this game. Or I'm not really sure which kind of box this would fit into. And they're trying to explain it to other people. And if there's too many things in there that are things that you've kind of in, like made up in ter- mechanically, um, it kind of works against you because you have almost this, resistance right where people are like wow i'm not really sure kind of what this is or how to describe it and then it never comes across as smooth as saying hey this game is a combination of these three other games if you like these three other games you're going to love this game because it's got this 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 and this and they've added this extra little pixie dust to uh, kind of make it their own and it's too bad because i think the industry um, benefits from these big changes right if you can get into kind of a new mechanic that's going to then help the games that come after, right? Because each of these games and each generation we come with these board games are combinations and iterations of the games that came before with, you know, with, with tweaks, right? 
new thematic overlays and so forth. And as you kind of see this industry evolve, it's really exciting when you compare the games you see now versus the games that were here even 10 years ago, right? And it's like, okay, well, where is this going to go 10 years from now? And and what is kind of the next big new mechanic that you're going to start seeing roll out across different games? And then who's going to be the person that's going to, you know, kind of chart that path? You know, who's going to be the person that's going to say, hey, we're, we're going to do that? And usually that's with uh, investment, right? Because anytime you try to train, you know this from your business uh, schooling, right? Is to train a new behavior is very, very costly, right? It mm-hmm. takes an incredible amount of dollars to educate people, right? So that they can understand this new concept. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to see, you know, you made the business decision to say, okay, we're going to go back and we're going to, we're going to kind of double down on the familiarity and with his, with, with our game. And, uh, and that's going to lead to success, which clearly <laughs> did. <laughs> I think uh, I'm, I'd like to add something to this yeah. because like, I think there are like different aspects. So for instance, like you have different factors that can contribute or to, to a successful board game or also detract from the success. And like it's interesting, for instance, the reviewers like Tom Battle, Rao, yeah. and so on, they're playing like hundreds of games every year. Yeah. They yeah. have a vast majority, like a vast knowledge of games, probably more than I do. I don't have the time to play so many games. I'm play testing. Yeah. Um, and they tend to overvalue innovation and novelty. Mm. And they rave about something that is very innovative. And then people are like may follow it, and mm-hmm. people are influenced by their by their opinions. But the thing is, like the average Joe does not know like hundreds of like um, Euro games. He doesn't care if Plants of Caledonia is similar to X Y Z because he doesn't even know those games. That's true. So for him, my game is novel because he doesn't know those other games. Maybe yeah. yeah. So. Um, so exactly what you said, like the adoption rate is easier if it's if it's more familiar to other games because then also learning the game is, is yeah. easier, yeah? Because you know, okay, this mechanic I know from this game. Okay, then then it's much easier to learn the game. But of course, novelty also helps because then you have a hook for the marketing. Like you can yeah. say, okay, this is the unique um, either uh, mechanic or the unique uh, material that we're using and um so that can also help so it's like a real balance and like you can be do it wrong by being too too unnovel and too basically familiar but you can also overdo it by being so novel that it's your it's too much for people and and maybe you're in the end it's all about fun and i think game designers tend to focus too much on novelty and i think Mm. for clients i really focused on the fun yeah if I sometimes had like an idea and and it was maybe really cool and very novel, but then I realized, is this adding really to more fun decisions? And often it didn't. Yeah. Um, so it's all about fun and and not about like, yeah, blasting people's minds with novelty. Yeah, I've uh, so a couple of things. One is your your comment about uh, the familiarity. I find even now when I'm playing games and explain because I've now I've played a, a good number of games. Certainly not even scratch the surface versus other people, but I've played a lot more now than I would have five years ago. And my group of friends and I, as we're playing a new game, it's funny because somebody will explain a game and they'll say, "Okay, um, this is a combination of," and they'll name three other games, 
right? And that kind of sets the stage as to the type of game it is. Okay, now here's the objective of the game and they get into the game, which I find is kind of a cool shorthand that you you establish uh, with, with other gamers. Um, what, I, what I would say is the, um, when I play test games now, I used to get into, okay, give me your feedback. What would you do differently? What did you like? What didn't you like? But now what I find, and I still do those kinds of questions, right? And we'll go deep on mechanics. But I always, before people start doing their feedback, I said, before you give me any of your feedback, I just want to know, was it fun? And that's a yes, no question, right? Yes, it was fun or eh, it was okay. If the answer isn't from everyone that it was fun, okay, I got to start there. There's something there that we got to fix to make sure that it's fun. We can go deep on mechanics because when you get into mechanics, everybody's got an opinion and depending on where they're coming from, whether they're a designer themselves, it's just a person who's played a lot of games, you're going to get a big mixed basket of, of feedback and you got to kind of try to sort through that. But the one consistent theme I think across the board is whether something's fun or not. Right. And if you can get that as your starting kind of barometer, then you can kind of go deep into the different aspects of the game from there. And let's say you're making a game that is similar to, let's say, one or two other games that are already successful. Of course, you need to also consider, like, why should people buy your game Yeah, that already have those other games that are your role models? Um, yes, they might like your game, but it needs to, to add some value to them so they go out of their way to actually buy your game because otherwise they basically have two versions of the same game. And yeah. Yeah, that's kind of inefficient too. And... I mean, it can even be a certain value that you're thinking, okay, my game scratches the same itch as this other game that is already successful, but yeah. with half the playtime or with half the rules overload. Um, overload. Yeah. Um, that could also be like the value of your game. Yeah? yeah. Or like a stronger thematic integration. Yeah. It doesn't need to be cooler mechanics. It can also be that the theme is, is just more present. Um, yeah, there's different ways how you can do achieve that. No, I totally agree. So let's talk quickly about Thiefdom. So this is on Kickstarter right now. Uh, for those who haven't checked it out, uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on uh, your funding thus far. So you are at, and I'm just showing on the screen for people that are watching on the playback. Um, you're sitting at, uh, I put this in Canadian dollars because it's the only way I can see it. Uh, you're at 90, just over $90,000 on a goal of 42,000. So double your goal already. Congratulations on that. And uh, you still got 13 days to go. So uh, where this is going to end is I'm sure going to be pretty exciting for you guys. 2,200 backers uh, or over 2,200 backers is a huge number. And when I saw that number, I'm like, okay, they're at 2,200 backers and they're almost at a hundred thousand right away I look over, okay, the pledge value's got, the cost of this game's got to be low, right? Because otherwise 2,200 backers, the, the number would be much bigger than that in funding. And I was, I was shocked actually at how inexpensive this game is uh, for people looking to back it. Was this a conscious decision from you guys? So I'll put it in kind of euros. It's like 29 euros, which to me seemed like really good value like it seemed really low in terms of like a pledge cost for a game like what you're getting in the box like you see this spread out on a table there's a lot of game here can you talk quickly to that a little bit before we get into the mechanics of the game itself yeah um i mean it was a very conscious decision like um i i, I realized when i got quotes from fulfillment centers that shipping costs have risen quite a lot oh yeah um, like shipping a game within the us is is expensive yeah like 
even a small game that is below two kilogram is really expensive. If you ship it from the East Coast to the West Coast, it's very expensive. And I did shop around. So I did got several quotes and even the cheapest one was quite expensive, a lot more expensive than back then when I launched clients on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, like, I mean, there is a lot of inflation and um, it's eating into gamers' budgets. Not everyone has like a gazillion money um, to spend on board games. And I mean, I do want to also be accessible or to make games that are accessible to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. And I already um, kind of hinted that I do have some, there is also an idealistic side in in my personality. So I also care about the environment and I don't want to kind of like bloat the product just to be able to kind of make more money with a single uh, purchase or with a single sale of the game. So. Mm -hmm. We rather keep things simple. We don't have like um, flashy miniatures, which could basically increase the MSRP by, could double the MSRP or more, and then probably would have more funding. Um, and um, so we came up with a pretty unique and also a bit risky business model. Yeah. And um, the, the idea is basically we will launch three Kickstarter campaigns this year for three mm. different physical games. And we will feed those into a pledge manager. And then people basically can, um, yeah, in the pledge manager, they can add any copies to their pledge. Their um, pledge on for three different instances, like added to the pledge manager as credit, and then they can choose any bundle of products there. Mm -hmm. And then they can basically bulk order games and um and realize um, savings on shipping costs. Because I realized the curve for shipping is kind of logarithmic, yeah? You, one copy may cost like 20 euros to ship or in the second copy, in Germany, it's even like quite flat. Like if I sell like one, two or three games, like in one parcel, it's the same price. Yeah. But basically that means like if you, if someone, um, orders three copies of a game or like three different games, they're paying just one third of the shipping per copy. Mm -hmm. So um, traditionally on Kickstarter, people have um, subsidized shipping costs, right? A lot. Yeah, we're seeing less and less of that now. We're seeing more people charge shipping costs after the campaign finishes just based on the container shortage and COVID. I mean, that just blew that entire model up, I think, of having shipping included, right? Yeah. Plus, I mean, it's also I I think it's it's like important to educate people what shipping actually costs. Like due to Amazon and and e-commerce, who kind of people have the feeling like shipping is for free. Like, and it <laughs> they might think it doesn't cost anything to ship stuff, but it still costs people to do that. Oh yeah. It's just priced into the game price, right? Yeah. Um. So I mean, I could have also charged fifty euros, including shipping. But that would have meant that if you order one or two copies, three copies wouldn't have made a difference, right? Yeah. Because then you would still pay the same price. And then people would only like order one copy, which is ecologically and economically less sound than mm -hmm. to order three copies. Um, so basically, I decided to order to, to charge at actual shipping costs. And um, give people an incentive to order either several game copies of the same game or it's different games, so they save a lot of money. And um, yeah, the, 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 I think in the end it will 
come to fruition. I mean, of course, it is also a bit risky in the sense that people are not used to it. And yeah. psychologically, it may feel say, like expensive. Wow, this is like 20 euros for shipping. This is like a waste. Uh, this money is lost. The, the, it might give the um, impression that the game is only worth 29 euros because that's the price of the mm. pledge. And um, but actually, like I was rather thinking it the other way around. Okay, what is like a reasonable MSRP? I think a reasonable MSRP for this game is 60 euros. Yeah. And if 60 euros is the MSRP, I should give backers a little discount. And and so this is like the end price that I target. Mm. And if this is the end price, and I also consider um VAT for EU and UK backers, yeah. then the base game should cost XYZ 29. And with shipping, um, UK backers or um, German backers and US backers will pay roughly 50 euros or in Germany a bit less, in the US, in, in UK a bit more. And, so just, um, so I just want to pack a couple things here. So one is uh, when you mentioned that you've got three different campaigns uh, running this year, but they're all using the same pledge manager. I've never heard of that before. So did I understand that correctly? So you're going to run three separate campaigns. Yeah. And then after the third campaign... Um, there'll be one pledge manager that'll cover off all three of those campaigns, and then each of those games can become add-ons essentially. Is that is that what you guys are doing? Exactly. Yeah. That's crazy. So, I've never heard of that before. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've never I've not seen this either. And it I had to really like I had many phone calls with different pledge manager yeah. um, providers with Kickstarter also to make sure that it's like complying with their model and so yeah. on. In the end, everything seems to work out fine. Who are you using but, for this? Who's the pledge manager? Um, currently, we plan to use GameFound. GameFound, um, okay. So basically, it only works if we implement, if we basically upload. I mean, what we can do is we can we will basically have for each Kickstarter campaign, we have a spreadsheet from Kickstarter, right? Mm -hmm. And what we can do is we can aggregate the data from those spreadsheets and identify people who back several campaigns. Yeah, and then add those numbers up. Like if you back two campaigns, then we sum up the your pledge. Basically, what exactly you pledge for doesn't matter because you'll only upload it as credit. And that's the difference the, between the different pledge managers, right? So, like a backer kit, for instance, it will uh, start off with okay, what did the person actually pledge? And then if there's leftover uh, in, credits in, in GameFound, it usually would that would it's usually also the case. But I think, but there it's possible also to just upload it as credit. Well, from my experience, with GameFound because I've used both. GameFound is no matter what it ends up being, the ultimate what they end up doing was they just put it in as a credit as a dollar value, and then oh, you okay. have to re-add your, your your pledge. So uh, in a case like that, this would work very well for what you guys are trying to do, right? Yeah, and the advantage is like. Multifold. I mean, first of all, people can realize shipping costs, uh, savings, and secondly, marketing-wise, it's also pretty good because, like, people who are like already convinced and for one game, even if they miss the other Kickstarter campaigns, they will be exposed to those other games in the mm -hmm. pledge manager. Yeah. So, and and they will see the 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 savings. Like they can basically add other games copies to their pledge and see how the shipping price um, will um, will look like. And mm -hmm. then they realize, okay, the shipping cost doesn't really increase when I add another copy. And then it will basically incentivize people to bulk order. And um, I'm I might not make so much uh, money per gamer or. Um, 
in this campaign, but in the very long run, I think the money I will make per gamer will be quite high because yeah, um, on aggregate. Yeah. So that's basically the idea. So walk us through Thiefdom. So I'm going to share the screen here for again for people who are watching. Um, explain this game, kind of what's the core objective of it, and then kind of how, like can you give kind of a, a like a top level overview of what this game is about and how people play? Yeah. So the game is for one to four players and it's very competitive. It's um, set in a medieval town called Baharach. Um, it it's like a, it actually is an existing um, town in Germany, hmm. and it has like a history of fire wine, like wine which was kind of heated with fire to make it more precious and more sweet and whatever. And um, in this medieval town, um, we are represent we are leading thief guilds who compete with each other to become the most glorious thief guild, and there are different ways um, to rob and steal different figurines to to rob different the market uh, you can go to the tavern to make friends who give you unique abilities you can go to the dealer to um acquire unique equipments that give you special actions um you can um, rob the carriage for wine which you can then smuggle and then there and the so basically it's a pickup delivery game mm -hmm. but there is like a stealthy twist because there are four um, city guards who have a field of view, mm -hmm. um, which is only blocked by walls and buildings. And when, as soon as a city guard sees a thief meeple, they bu they bust this thief. Yeah, the, the thief will be arrested and loses yeah. all the loot and some victory points. And um, there are four of those city guards, and they are controlled by the players. Mm -hmm. Um, so basically the players can try to move those city guards in a way that hinders the movement of other players, but is actually not hindering themselves. And then so you control can... three three thieves yourself, right? So you have your, three of your own thieves, then plus you have exactly. the ability to uh, impact these guards. That's cool. That's why the, the game has quite a lot of uh, strategic depth and a lot of dynamic. It's very dynamic and very interactive, yeah? Um, mm -hmm. Your thieves, they can also like work as a team basically so this gives it also like a bit of a heist feeling yeah um they can um give each other loot so like one person may be better at running so you give the one thief gives the other person like loot so they can run faster and bring it to the dealer or whatever and um yeah that's pretty fun and, and then you have another... these eight boards which are reversible so you have like how many combinations of this map can you have based on the boards I didn't count it, but it's like endless. It's like, it's huge. I mean, they're double-sided, um, the boards, and you can also rotate them. So like, yeah, it's it's huge. And since it's a pickup delivery game, it's you can imagine it's a bit like um, Istanbul, mm -hmm. where this, the, the layout is modular. Yep. But in this game, it's even like more modular because... Um, because you can rotate the boards and that makes a difference. Yeah, they're also double sided, and the, the the other this side is also different, so that makes a lot of difference. Yeah, and um, another key mechanic in the game is like at the beginning of next round, um, every player has four planning markers: one planning marker for each of their thieves, and one planning marker for the neutral pieces like the city guards and the noble and the carriage. And then in this planning phase, every player is. Um, putting their planning markers hidden and simultaneously 
on each slot for those four mm. um, pieces. And um, so you basically have to consider, do I first move with the city guard or first with the thief? And there is also a bit of like, you have to take risks sometimes, yeah. Um, do I risk being arrested or not? Um, and um, so that's fun. Yeah, it looks like a blast. Um, so if somebody wants to follow this campaign, I'm going to put uh, links in the show notes so they can easily find it or go to Kickstarter and just type in Thiefdom. Uh, what is uh, kind of what's the game after this then? What's your next title that comes after this one? Millennial. Millennial. And that's a Sif game with okay. like more than 300 cards. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's a game about um, where you go through eight ages of mankind. Yeah. And um, you can acquire technology cards and building cards and wonders. And those have uh, a duration. They they can last for one to four ages approximately. And at the end of an age, you check which cards are basically becoming obsolete and then you discard those. Mm. That's very interesting because for many strategy games, you tend to have a strong engine building aspect. And you decide for an engine early on and then you kind of rinse and repeat and you need to focus on that engine because if you don't, then it's inefficient, yeah? And yeah. Um, so, and and I, I think this is sometimes a bit pity because then you only have like a rather limited amount of potential viable strategies that work. Whereas in this game, mixed strategies are much more feasible because you can, for instance, go for military early on and then you lose the military cards at some point anyway. And then you could focus on research or politics or culture or mm. trade. Um, yeah. And then this one will feed into that same pledge manager that we were just talking about earlier, right? Exactly. That's cool. Well, Juma, I want to wish you all the best on this campaign. You still got 13 days to go. I'm sure you guys are going to crush it with that back end kind of hockey stick that happens. Again, if anybody wants to check out uh, Thiefdom, simply just type in Thiefdom on uh, Kickstarter. You can find it. There's also going to be a link in the show notes. All the best. And I hope I get to run into you at SMI friend. You take care. Thank you so much for the interview, Jane. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Thank you.